All right, so today, part three, becoming a missionary. I'm going to talk about five things that you must do in order to begin to, there's a whole bunch of other things, but we're going to be looking in this passage of some of the things that this woman has done. So I'm going to start us off with this in this passage says just then, so this is take picking up after the woman came to the well, Jesus said, hey, I'm thirsty, would you give me a drink of water? She says, how can you, a Jew, talk to me? And he says, well, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. She says, hey, you don't have anything to draw with. How are you going to, you know, do you, are you more, are you greater than Jacob? And, and he says, truly, if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. But if you'll drink the water I have for you, you'll never thirst. Then she says, hey, I want the quick fix. Give me that water so I don't have to keep coming here and drawing water. And he says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're correct. You don't have a husband. You've had five failed marriages, five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Ooh, it got real, <laughs> real quick. And then she says, oh, I can perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> Let's change the subject here. I don't want to talk about my problems. You're a prophet. Which, which mountain should, should we worship in Jerusalem, or can we worship on this mountain? He says, you worship what you don't know. She goes, I'm confused. I'm just paraphrasing here. I'm confused. But when the Messiah, who is the Christ, was come, he'll explain all these things. And he said, I who's speaking to you, I am he. The moment that changed everything. The moment when she met her Lord and Savior. The moment that she met the Messiah. The moment. So, the, so, so as we look at this, I get excited about this moment, the moment that changes everything. I hope that you guys remember the moment that changed everything in your life. The moment that you, I remember the moment that I surrendered everything in my life over to God. I remember I was in a college dorm. I was praying about, God, what do you want me to do with my life? At that point, I was playing college football. I was... Um, going to be an elementary education teacher because I was like, well, you know what? Finger painting and recess doesn't sound too bad and snacks, so I can do those things and then I could be a, a coach. I knew that I was too short and slow and small-handed to ever be a wide receiver in the NFL, so I knew that the college was about the, the height of whatever was going to happen for me there, and the Lord... Um, Man, he opened up that roof, and I felt a love that I have never felt so strongly in my life, and I wept like a baby in front of my, my, uh, my roommate. He thought I was creepy and weird, and he left. <laughs> then I became uh, a roommate of one. I was by myself. So anyways, but I remember the moment where God changed everything for me. I believed before then, but that was the moment that changed everything. When we, when we come to a moment that changes everything, everything literally changed. Everything changed for this woman in a moment. The moment she recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, it changed everything. So becoming a missionary, the first thing, so in this passage it says, just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Like, hey woman, what do you want? Okay, <laughs> they didn't ask that, or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So the first thing that I want us to look at is this. The first thing is you have to have a change in your purpose. If we're going to become a missionary, 
I have to have a change in my purpose. See, what her purpose was is to get to the well without being seen, without conversation, get her water, and get back to the house without being noticed. That was her purpose, but the purpose has to change. we got to leave the water jar behind. There's some things in your life that you need to leave behind so that you can move forward. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's some things in your life, and you already know what they are. I don't even have to tell you. I don't even have to make a long list of things to hope that I hit some of them. You know the things in your heart, some of the things that you need to leave behind so that your purpose can change. The mission of this church is finding freedom to walk in purpose. You can't walk with purpose if I can't find the freedom. There's some things in your life that you need to leave behind. She needed to leave this water pot behind. The very purpose that she showed up for. She went into this, the, the city and she spoke and she spoke to all the men, the very people that she was trying to avoid. Here's what's amazing is she went from doubt to faith. She went from avoiding people to approaching people. She went from closed to all to open to all. She, she went from not wanting to give a single man a drink to offering everybody a drink. Remarkable about this one moment, the one moment that changed everything. You know, this happened with a single encounter with Jesus. I want you to, to, to take a note of that mentally. This one conversation with Jesus changed her entire perspective and purpose and focus on life. How many of you have had an encounter with Jesus? You've had a true encounter with Jesus. Okay, only half of you. Hopefully the rest of you will have that today. I sometimes wonder, she had only a one single encounter with Jesus and her life was turned upside down in such a way that she turned an entire town upside down for Jesus. We've had multiple encounters with Jesus, and sometimes I don't see the same urgency in our own lives. That was a tough one, wasn't it? I read these stories, and I see these people who, they met the true Jesus, and it changed everything, and sometimes... We don't want to change. We want to go to heaven without the change. The change is the best part. It's the best part. What are you so afraid of? Would you be radical? A Jesus freak? That's a compliment. I'm all right with that. So, while she left and... And so she left to go do this. The disciples were there. So meanwhile, we're going to come back now to the story back at the well, right? So meanwhile, back at the well, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not. Whoops. Help me out. Go back. Thank you. <laughs> My finger. Okay. So uh, he said, I have food that you don't know of. Therefore, the disciples said to each other, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What I find really interesting is that Jesus and this, this woman at the well, they, they, they came, they're, they're per, it was so neat. She came for water, but left it behind, this jar, so that she could do the will of God. Jesus came and he was waiting on his disciples to bring him back food from town, and yet he left the food behind to do the will of God. 
You see, the second thing I want to bring to your, to your attention is that you must know the will of God. Like, I need to know what God wants from me. Amen? I, I want to know, what does God want from me? Does anybody else with me on that? Do you want to know what God wants? And this, you can't do this in a single sermon, but what I am going to do is I'm going to give you just a quick, broad stroke of, of a couple of things that you can see clearly in His Word. In John chapter 6, a couple of chapters after this, uh, in the Bible, he says this in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. One of the things when you're starting to think about this, it's not about you. It's not about my will anymore. The moment that I surrendered my life to the Lord, I'm surrendering my will to his will. I want God's will for my life. Right? I want God's will. God, what do you want me to do? He goes on and says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall, not, shall, have, shall have eternal life. So one of the things that I see is this. First, God wants everyone to be saved. When you talk about God's will, the word will means desire or want. What does God desire? He desires everybody to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. God wants everyone to be saved. That's what he wants. Now, is everybody going to be saved? No, because there's a lot of people who are so stubborn Stubborn-headed, mule-headed, refuse to believe. Despite all the prophecy that's been fulfilled, despite all of the evidence, all of the truth, despite changed lives, that's what gets me the most. How can you not believe in God when you see people radically changed forever? Willing to die for their faith. God wants everybody to be saved. The second thing that we can see is in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. What happens is this. The moment that you're saved, God begins a lifelong work in your life to sanctify you, to set you apart from the rest of the world. He wants you to talk differently, act differently, walk differently than the rest of the world. He wants you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He wants you to forgive the people who have harmed you. Now, is that not a hard one? That's pretty hard. You see, the rest of the world doesn't forgive. The rest of the world doesn't love. Everyone loves who they love, but not the whole world loves their enemies. So God is saying, I'm going to show you a different way in which you're going to live that's going to show that you are mine. And so God begins to do a sanctifying work in your life. It goes on to say that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. He says, I want you to live in a life where people can see God in you. That's what he's calling us to. So two things that I can guarantee you are in the will of God because the word says it. He wants everybody to be saved and he wants everybody to be sanctified. Now there's a whole bunch of other little rabbit trails that we do not have time for today. Now the third thing I want to show you about being a missionary is this. You must open your eyes and focus on the kingdom. Our actions always follow our way of thinking. Have you ever found that out? Have you discovered that, that your actions always follow? 
follow the way that you think. The disciples were surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman. And it says they didn't ask, what do you want? But that's what they were thinking. What do you want? Leave him alone. See, their concern was Jesus. He's tired. He's wore out from the traveling. He needs food. He needs rest. Woman, leave him alone. That's what their mind is. Their mind wasn't that she needed salvation. They were like, I want to get him rest so we can get out of Samaria. Because they're homesick. They're so focused. They want to go back to Galilee where their families are. We need to hurry up. And Jesus said, no, we're taking a two-day trip here because these people need me too. You see, what happens is we get so often, don't we also, just like the disciples, get really focused on our own kingdom that we're building? I want you to think about this. We put our careers and our jobs before God all the time. That's a part of your own kingdom that you're building. The problem is, is we have priority issues. Just like the disciples, we can put our careers, and I, I hear people say, you know what, yeah, when I, when I get retired or when I get settled in, I'll start serving God. When they get older, then they realize that, hey, I retired, but I'm just working just as hard as when I was getting paid for it. Now I'm just not getting the money for it. Guys, life is never going to stop being busy. Life is never going to stop offering you opportunities to be busy. So, sometimes it's not even our job. Sometimes it's our hobbies. Hunting and fishing. I don't know, maybe some of you golf, I don't know. Some of you watch a lot of football on Sunday afternoons. What I'm wanting us to understand is that when I want to follow God's will, I have to be focused on His kingdom. Not that you can't watch football or that you can't go hunting or fishing, but anytime those things begin to take priority over the kingdom. And see, he's trying to say, listen, I've got food that you didn't know about. My food is to do the will of God. Is your, is your nourishment of your life to do the will of God first? Am I at that place in my life where, God, I want to do what you want me to do first? Yes, I came to Walmart to get some groceries, but God, do you want me to do something today? God, I, I came for the purpose of eating out with some friends from church, but God, do you want me to pray for our waitress today? You see, what happens is we get so focused on our little kingdoms, we forget the big picture in the big kingdom we're serving. What happens if every time we went to a restaurant, God, do you want me? Is there anything you want me to do while I'm here? God, while I'm in the store, is there anybody you want me to meet today? God, while I'm walking to my house, though it's hot, is there a neighbor I need to go see? God, what do you want me to do? I have your kingdom in mind. How many of you would, would see your life changed if you began your day? God, open my eyes to the appointments you have set for me today. We get so busy with our lives that we forget that God is putting us in the presence of all kinds of people who need him. And we're too busy with our own little kingdoms to see that God has already set appointments and we keep missing them and missing them and missing them. Churches do this so often. We get 
we get in these we get in these places of where we don't you know you know how hard it is to get church people and church is to support missionaries just ask brother Isaiah and Carolyn how hard it is because you know what so many churches are so business minded what they say is well what do we get out of this because they're so focused on their little tiny kingdom which has dwindled to nothing they forget that there's a kingdom that they're supposed to be serving sometimes if it doesn't do us any good we don't do it how many times churches don't partner can you imagine the kind of revival a city could have if all the churches would do it together can you imagine the resources done but you can't get churches to work together because, well, the big church gets all the people or this happens or that happens or we don't like that church or we don't like, guess what? When we get there, there's only one church. There's one church where we're going. There's not going to be a row of Pentecostals. There's not going to be the Assembly of Gods, the Mennonites, the Baptists. When you get there, he's going, you got it all wrong. There's no denomination where we're going. So we have to open our eyes. Look at this verse. This is so cool how he says this. And and here's what happens is we so easily lose sight of what is important. We lose sight of the goal. We lose sight of the kingdom. Get, Get this. The harvest, hear me, the harvest is the goal of a seed. You hear me? The harvest is the goal of a seed. If I'm going to plant a tomato seed, the goal is to harvest a tomato in the future. You don't plant a seed for no harvest. You plant a seed because you are having in mind the goal of a harvest. So Jesus uses this illustration. He goes, don't you say, he's telling the disciples, don't you say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? He says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look. The fields are already white for harvest. He's not talking about wheat at this moment. Here's the deal. You remember what happened in the story? The lady left her water jar and she ran into town and telling all the people, come meet the man who knew everything about me. Could it be the Messiah? So guess what they're all doing? They're all coming out of the town to this, this well that's outside of town. And the disciples are like, come on, let's get on the road again. We, we want to, <laughs> on the road again? Well, let's go, you know, get your, get your food. We, we want to go to Galilee. And Jesus is like, do you not say there's four more months and then the harvest look the harvest is ready now guys i want you to know that there are people in your life right now waiting for you to share your faith they're waiting on you and you want to talk about the weather you want to talk about the president who cares i know who the real president is We get so fixated on politics. We get fixated on what's going on in this country. I know that it's going to hell in a handbasket. I already know that. But there's a king above all kings and a lord of all lords. And the great I am, he has a kingdom that will never fail. He already won the battle. And there are people in your lives that need Jesus and they're waiting on you. And you're letting fear hold you back. They're waiting on you to share what Jesus has done in your life. The disciples missed 
all of what God was already doing. See, God's got this great plan, and he's already doing it all. And how many times we miss those opportunities that he sets for us. He says, look, and then I love how he says, oh, how true it is. For in this saying, one sows and another reaps, I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And I started thinking about that. Well, well, let me put it up there. You must know the goal. The harvest is the goal of the seed. So the disciples, I started thinking, well, who is he talking about? Who, who was the labor? Well, here's the deal. David, Moses, David, all the Old Testament prophets have already set the foundation for all the disciples we're building upon. Well, guess what? Then what happens is all the disciples and the apostles and everybody who wrote in the New Testament has already built upon that. And guess what? Everybody in the world knows who Jesus is. Seeds have already been planted in this entire world. Because here's the reality. No matter if you come across a non-believer or not, Jesus was a real historical figure. Nobody can take that away. He was a real dude. He's in the history books of Rome, of, 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 of the Jewish. I mean, you could go anywhere. He's a real guy who died on a cross put there by Romans. That's a fact. Now, you have to believe whether you believe he's the Messiah or not. That's the believing part. That's the faith part. Guess what? I can also tell you another fact. His tomb was empty. Fact. Historical fact. Now, then you have to decide, what do I believe about the empty tomb? Did the fishermen defeat Roman centurion soldiers trained from birth to kill people when they were running in fear themselves? Did they get confused on where the tomb was? I thought it was a left. I should have took a right. But here's the reality is Jesus fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament about him. The evidence is there everywhere. And any of you who have accepted him in your life, you already know all the evidence that you'll ever need. You see, the harvest is the goal of the seed. So I want to share with you some laws of the harvest. So I'm going to, this is my organized, planned rabbit trail. I want to show you, um, I want to show you a couple of, of things because I, I remember hearing a sermon a long time ago about the laws of harvest and I really liked it and it was really neat. So I'm going to show you a couple things and then we're going to get right back into the sermon. But um, so the first thing I want to do is this. I'm going to show you law number one. This is dealing with the harvest. This is talking about the goal of the harvest is, or the goal of the seed is the harvest. That's the goal, right? So law number one is God is the giver of the increase. God makes it grow. First Corinthians chapter three, verse five and eight through eight says this, what after all is Apollos and, and what is Paul, but only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each one a task. I planted, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. People all the time say, Daniel, man, you're, you, you've made your church grow. I'm like, yeah, no, I haven't. They say, will you come and talk to our church about how to get it to grow? Real easy, God. That's your answer. God, maybe if God was in your people, it would start growing. Because here's the reality. God is the giver of the increase, not me and not you, not anyone. God is the one who makes it grow. That's the number one most important law of the harvest. God is the one that makes it grow. Good, right? Come on, come on. I'm gonna write a book. You want your church to grow? God, there we go. Short book, you're ready to go. 
I remember a, a church that I resigned uh, immediately after this statement was made. They're like, uh, a group of deacons came to me once and they said, well, hey, we realize that we have the same qualifications as you as a pastor, so we're going to hold you accountable from here on out. We're going to be over you. You're just a preaching deacon, <laughs> okay? And so then they said, well, here's the other thing that we're going to do is that you're responsible from here on out if the church grows or not. Unbiblical, see you later. Here's my resignation, I'm done. I'm not going to be in an unbiblical church because it's not my responsibility. See, here's what's really happening. You know why this church continues to grow? Because you're planting seeds everywhere you go. And then I'm just watering it with God's word. Every time you invite somebody to come check out the church, that's a seed. And every time I'm preaching the word of God, that's watering a seed. But God ultimately decides. There's people here visiting today, and I'm so glad that you're here. Here's the reality. It's in God's hands where he wants them. This might not be their home. Maybe God says, hey, I need you to be somewhere else. But God is the giver of the increase, not you and not me. Okay, law 2, 3, and 4 comes in this next passage I want to share with you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly, which means not very much, will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Three laws I want to bring up from this. Law number two, you reap only if you sow. Guess what? If you go out to a garden and you till it up and you get all the weeds pulled and you got a nice, you know, landscape of dirt and you don't plant a single seed, guess what you won't get? A single harvest. There's a lot of churches that say, why aren't we growing? Because your people aren't planting seeds. You can't expect growth if you're not willing to put in the, in the effort of planting seeds. You want to know why your friends aren't getting saved? Maybe because we're not planting the seed of the gospel in them. There's always a, you always have to look at it. You only reap if you sow, not reap because there is no sowing. You have to sow to reap. Law number three, you reap what you sow. If I plant a piece of corn, a corn seed, I'm not going to say, man, I hope a tomato comes up. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense, does it? So what I'm wanting you, let me, let me illustrate this. This whole passage is actually about giving. It's a trick. I got you here just so I could talk about giving money. But that's actually what this passage is about. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's the reason why we don't pass plates. Hands down because of this passage. I said, I will not pass plates. I don't want anybody to ever feel like that's what we want from you. That's between you and God. If you want to give, give. If you don't, that's between you and him. God will take care of this church. It's his church, not mine. If he decides that, hey, it's only going to be 10 years and then we're going to shut it down, then that's up to God. It's his church. I don't want anybody to ever feel like they're shoved into doing it. If you want to give, give. That's between you and him. For God loves a cheerful giver. If somebody's walking up and like, keep it. You need it more. But what he's talking about is that that money was a seed. He's telling that church that, there's a, that the whole point of that passage was telling that, pe that group of people Jerusalem was in a great famine and needed help. He says, Corinthian church, you've got money. Help them. And they didn't want to, so he wrote a second letter. And he began to teach them about giving. He says, listen, if you're not willing to give very much, don't expect very much. If you're not willing to put very many seeds 
of your financial resources, then don't expect God to bless your finances. How can we say, God, I'm not going to give to you to sure bless me money-wise, right? That's what it's saying. Is like, listen, don't go to God and say, God, I need you to give me all this money if you're not willing to put skin in the game on your own side. That's what he's saying is if you're not willing to give, if you're going to only give a little, then you're only going to get back a little. That's the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow, and you reap in the same measure you sow. Isn't that remarkable? I look at God, I'm like, wow, that is pretty straightforward, isn't it? If I'm planting a gospel seed in someone, I'm not expecting a financial return. You get what I'm saying? Is I'm, if I'm planting the gospel in people, I'm hoping to see salvation. I'm hoping to see their lives change. If I'm saying, man, I want to help the Haiti group, and I want to sow financially into them. Like, God, I'm, this is your, here's the deal. Oh, I'll get to that law in a second. I better stop getting ahead of myself. All right, so let me go over the last law. The last law is this. God not only makes it grow, but he also supplies the seed. Check this out. 2 Corinthians, the very next couple of verses in that same passage we just read, says, now he who supplies the seed. Here's what's amazing. He gives you the seed to sow. It's not even your seed. Isn't that remarkable? Now he who supplies the seed, he's saying, listen, I want you to sow the seed. And he's like, I'll supply you the seed too. People say, well, how do you mean that financially? Who do you think got you the job? Who do you think gave you the breath of life when you were created? Who do you think gave you the abilities that you have to get the job you have? God, that's his name. Think about it, everything that you have in your life was a gift from God. He already supplied you all the seeds you need. Whether it's a financial seed that needs to be sown or an evangelistically uh, seed that needs to be sown or even a ministry one. Isn't that amazing? Thank you. All right, we got a young one who gets it. All right, now, I love that, how he not only supplies the seed. Now, look at that. He who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase. He gives me the seed. He says, now go seed and water, and then he makes it grow. Here's the seed. Go plant it. Okay, thank you for giving me all of this resources that I have to distribute out here. And then all of a sudden he goes, now I want you to water it. Okay, and he makes it grow. Not only does he give you all the seeds, he gave you the job that you have, he gave you the home that you have, gave you the spouse that you have. He's given you everything that you need to supply all. He's supplied you already. And then he says, I'm gonna, now I'm going to bless it. <sighs> What a generous God we serve. The final thing that I want to bring to your attention about being a missionary is this, sharing your testimony. You must share your testimony. Here's what's amazing as we go back to our story in John 4. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of, this, of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Would they have gotten to that point if it wasn't for her testimony? Huh? Think about this. Because of this woman's faithfulness, 
No matter how uncomfortable it was, can you imagine how uncomfortable it would be? Go back to the town that you felt all your condemnation from. Go back to the town that you felt all the stares from. You felt all the shame. You know that everybody knows your business and you're going back there and yet you're so boldly telling them about the Messiah? The word testimony is a Greek word, martis. It's a legal term used for a witness in court. Martis. It's where we get the word martyr, but it's not about death. We always make a martyr about death. Martis is about somebody who lives a life in such a way that their life is the evidence that God is real. When you are a martyr, that means that your life lived, whether you're still living or whether you died in, in, in persecution, but that your life was the evidence that God is real. Her life changed radically and everyone took notice. Remember the moment that changed everything. So I want to share with you, this is my last slide by the way, just in case you're getting tired. I want to share with you just a really quick way of how to share your testimony. Super simple. The first step in the foundational piece is at the bottom. It's the foundation of everything. You've got to live a life worthy of the gospel you received. Here's the deal. If you're living like hell and then trying to talk about heaven, it doesn't make sense to anybody, does it? See that whole sanctification part? When God changes your life, people will take notice. Right? Think about that. When everything in your life changes, people take notice. How many, how many of you have had somebody in the last six months to a year say, wow, something's changed in you and it was because of God? How many of you? Several of you. Say, man, people have noticed the change. That's the first part of a testimony. How you're living, how you're talking, what you're posting on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Live in such a way that people can noticeably see a difference in you. See, when you meet Jesus, before Jesus it was B.C., before Christ. And then you meet Jesus, and there was a before Jesus, and then there's an after Jesus. And when Jesus really, when you let him in and you surrender everything, everything changes in your life, and I mean radically and quickly. And people begin to notice. That's the first step of sharing your story. The second is this, to confess your life before. She walked through the town and she says, come meet the man who knew everything I've ever done, who knows all of my sin. Here's the reality is the life that we had before Christ is usually pretty shameful, isn't it? But that's a part of it is I was like this. Yes, we all know. <laughs> but now I'm like this. My life has now changed right i mean here's the, here's something i my one of my favorite parts of my story is this for the longest time i cared more and and this is not a proud moment but this is a, a confession moment for a lot a lot of years in our marriage i was more concerned about the church than i was about my wife and i had a great pastor come to me and he says daniel the church is a bride just not yours you have your own bride and it took the death of my son to get us into the counseling that we needed so that I could open my own eyes and see that I was not the man of God I wanted to be. I was so focused on wanting to be a good pastor that I sacrificed my family for a lot of years. But anybody who knows me today, I'm twice the man I was. 
even two years ago. And it made me a better pastor, and that wasn't even the goal of it. The goal was I wanted to be a good husband, and then I wanted to be a good father, and then if I was a good pastor, so be it. And that's why we preach so much on husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and why the family is so important. Confess your life before. Don't be afraid of the mistakes that you've made in the past. That's the past. Then the third part is to share your encounter with Jesus. Sometimes we get into these testimonies where I hear people share their testimony and they'll spend an hour talking about how bad they were. And then you hardly ever get to the moment where Jesus changes everything. That's the best part of the story. That's the climactic point. And like, get to the good stuff. I know that you were messed up. I know you were bad. Now get to the good part. Don't forget the best part. That's the encounter. There's a moment in your life where Jesus changed everything. That's what we should want to talk about. The, 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 the night that God met me in my dorm room. That's the night I want to talk about. Where he changed my life. The next day I went in and I resigned. For, I quit the football team just like that. Done. Well, you can still play football and preach. Uh-uh. My purpose is different. It's changed. I could care less. I'll watch it from TV. The fourth part is to share what happened afterward. Begin to share what God is doing in your life between that moment, that encounter, and what he's doing. These are the things that God is changing in my life now. And the last part and the most important part and the part that almost everybody forgets is invite. Can you imagine a car salesman for a moment? We got two of them here if you guys need a car. Integrity Together Auto. Do I get a little bit of a kickback for that? Okay, I'm just checking. So imagine Josh is, he's a, Josh stand up. Everybody, so everybody can see you. Uh, that's Josh. So Josh is a, we went to school together, and he was a class clown like I was, so we got along. So um, anyways, and so he's so good at telling stories. I mean, and, and I, you could go there, and he could tell you. You could look at a clunker, and you think it's, you know, I mean, like, but here's the thing. If he, if he had this great car, and he's, like, telling you all the good parts. Man, it's got new tires. It just was service. It only had one owner. Man, they kept really good care of it. And, man, the best part about it is the price that we're asking. High five, and he walks back into the office. What good is it if he doesn't ask if you want to buy the car? Where Christians make the greatest mistake is we don't invite people to Christ. We tell him about Christ, and then we leave the, be- the, the most important part is, would you like to invite him into your life too? Because think about this. If somebody doesn't know Christ, how do they know how to do that? Unless you help them with that part. How many people have been told about Christ and told about Christ and told about Christ but never invited to Christ? Don't forget that part. What's the worst that they can say? No. Okay. I'm going to ask you again tomorrow. Right, Jared? (laughs) I wore him out. One of the things I want to do today, so I have no more notes, and I'm not going to ramble on, even though I would love to. It feels good to be back home. Um, I want you to bow your head, and I want you to close your eyes for a moment.
Here's the thing is if, if any of you here are wanting to give your life to Jesus and maybe that, that's the encounter you're looking for, I'd, I'd ask you to raise your hand right now. If there's anybody here saying, man, I want to give my life to Jesus, I, I never want to hesitate to ask that question. I never want to not invite people to give their life to Jesus. And that tells me that most of us in this room are saved, if not all. But most of us have already made that kind of a decision. Well, I want to push you further then. I remember you know, all of our associate pastors and different ministers along the way, I always try to push them deeper into a level of commitment than where they were prior. Do you know what God wants you to do with your life? If you think that your life is all about just paying your bills, you're wrong. If you think that all there is to your life is making sure that you have a, a, a picture-perfect family that you can put on Facebook, you're wrong. Life is greater and more purposeful than even that. My question to you is, have you ever even asked God what He wanted you to do? Or are you busy telling Him what you want to do? When I tell God what I want to do, I'm saying I want to build my own kingdom, God, and I want you to help me do it. When I say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Then I'm saying, God, I want to build your kingdom, and now what do you want me to do in your kingdom? Some of you here today have got a call of God in your life. And maybe you have never surrendered to it. Maybe you've been running from it your whole life. Maybe you have never publicly said, God has a call in my life. I remember some amazing people who, were, who, who, who had never surrendered to that call. If God has a calling in your life and you know it, and you've been running, I'm going to ask you to stop running away, and today you come down to the altar and you surrender that calling to Him. If God has a calling in your life and you know it, and you've been running from it, I'm going to ask you to lay it down right now. Don't worry about anybody else. You lay it down. Say, God, I'm, I'm surrendered. I'm, I'm all in on this, God. I'm all in. There's no turning back. Maybe there's some of you that have no clue what God, what you, what God is wanting you to do. I'm going to invite you also to the altar. Maybe it's time for you to get on your knees and say, God, what do you want from me? And I want you to listen. Listen like you've never listened before. God, what do you want me to do? Maybe there's some parts in your life that you're noticing right now that maybe there's some, some, some things that's in between you and that testimony that maybe you've been living some, in some sin and maybe you need to get rid of some things in your life. Maybe that's what you need to lay down. But I want you to know the altar, when we lay ourselves down, we're saying, God, here I am, meet with me. So the altar is open. We don't need music. It's okay to be quiet. It's okay to, to be able to just hear from Him. For the rest of you sitting, I want, you to, I want to encourage you on something right now. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head. And I want you to think of somebody that you care about. You truly care about that you know needs Jesus. And I want you to pray for their salvation right now. I want you to pray for that person you know needs Jesus. 
And I want you to pray that God will give you the strength to speak life into their life. That He would give you the boldness to share your faith.